Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Off the Waivers podcast. Sorry for the brief hiatus. Uh, we both, both of us got a little busy this summer. We had some things we had to close out, but now we are back uh, after a short break. I'm your host, James Andrews, welcoming in my co-host, Eric Barnes. Eric, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, James. It's been a little while, but you know, there's, it, there's a lot of baseball to cover and we got to get to it. Uh, I've been great. How have you been? I've been pretty good. It's it's nice to be back here on campus. We're finally together face-to-face again. No more having to do it online uh, over Discord, so that'll be a lot easier. Hopefully our podcast should flow a little bit smoother. We can bring you guys a better experience overall. Uh, as you mentioned, we're going back to covering baseball today. We will be bringing you guys a basketball podcast later on in the week or next week, uh, breaking down all the off-season stuff that's going on in the NBA. But for now, the MLB world is red hot. And with that, we're going to jump into our first story today, and that is the National League wildcard race. Uh, it looked pretty locked up at one point in the season with the three power teams in the NL West, the Giants, Dodgers, and Padres, all competing for that division. It was a foregone conclusion at one point that the two teams that missed out on that division would get the consolation prize of playing each other in the wildcard game, but that's no longer the case as the Cincinnati Reds have been red hot of late and the Padres have really struggled since the start of July. The Reds are 16-8 and eight over their past 24 games, and the Padres are just 18-24 and 24 since July 1st. The Reds recently overtook the Padres in the wild card, in the second wild card, after the Padres held on to that for most of the season. Do you think this is something that the Reds can keep, the, keep going going forward, or do you think the Padres, who were expected to be much better going into the season and have the better overall roster, do you think they'll retake their spot? I think what we're looking at is the, the Padres are just really slumping and kind of in a funk over the past you know, so many weeks. They've had uh, injuries, especially to Tatis, and it's really like starting to get uh, have them crumble. And I think the Reds' offense has always been solid, and they've had their injuries as well. I don't think they're pitching; they have enough pitching to get them through the stretch as much as you know the Padres do. And, and I think that the Padres will hopefully, and I, w- I won't say hopefully, but um, you would think they would be able to uh, pull through. And it's only a game, and it's just. You know, only minor panic button, but I don't know uh, if this is going to be as much of a lock as we, you know, previously fought. As you mentioned, it, it was something that uh, we we thought it was locked up. It was like if you're not in the in the uh, NL West, it's going to be a, a tough, you know, pickings for you because you got to win your division, otherwise you're out basically. But I don't know if that's the case. I think that we have a real race here. I think the Reds. Um, definitely will give the Padres, you know, fits and maybe even the Cardinals might sneak in there too. I I ultimately think the Padres will be the team that comes out on top, but I think it will be a lot closer and a lot, um, you know, more attaining the watch down the stretch based on how things are playing out here. Yeah, as of right now, I'm still leading the Padres way as well, but the Reds have a real shot here. They have one of the easiest schedules going forward for the rest of the season, and alternatively, the Padres have the toughest statistical schedule going forward for the rest of the season as they still have a lot of upcoming games against the Giants and the Dodgers. So that's going to be real tough for them. They're going to have to start playing a lot better baseball really quickly. But the Reds, man, that lineup is legit. With Nick Castellanos, Joey Votto, and Jesse Winker leading that lineup, and with other guys like John, Jonathan India and Tyler Naquin playing way above uh, what we expected them to do going into this season, they probably host one of the best lineups, if not the best in all of baseball right now. And that's not something we really expected to say coming into the season. And I think one of the biggest reasons is Jesse Winker. 
He's currently boasting a 954 OPS with 24 home runs and 71 RBIs on the season. His batting average is over 300. He's been one of the best sneaky players in baseball, and he's not really getting any love. You don't, you don't see MLB posting about them on their social media sites. You don't see him in the conversations for the MV, or MVP race. But right now, the National League MVP race is kind of wide open. It's been uh, between Bryce Harper and Fernando Tatis. Um, pretty much the past couple of months. But the problem is now both of those guys are at risk for missing the playoffs. So if that were to be the case, Jacob deGrom, obviously another guy in that MVP conversation, has been out for the past couple of months and isn't probably isn't going to return this season. Then I think it's open for a guy like Jesse Winker to maybe sneak in and put his name in that conversation. I mean, I don't necessarily think so. I think Jesse Winker right now is dealing with um, some injuries himself. And that might uh, sideline him a little bit. He's been, uh, I think, out for at least the past week or so. I, I think that if you things were to play out like that and you were looking for someone who might be able to squeeze in there and take it from a Tatis, I, it would be Max Muncy, I think, from the Dodgers. And like I, I think that what he's done production-wise with the Dodgers, as well as the versatility that he gives them, is something that looks way more uh, in the MVP race than maybe a Jesse Winker. But, I mean, it's all love to, to Jesse Winker. Like, he's been incredible this year. He's been an all-star for the first time, and he really is one of the heart and soul uh, guys of this Reds team and why the lineup's done well. I think the the huge catalyst for the uh, the recent resurgence of their offense has got to be Joey Votto, though. Joey Votto... Uh, in the past month or so has been probably the hottest hitter on the planet. And he's just been absolutely unreal. The home run numbers are incredible. He's made a slight adjustment with his leg kick and, and he's just taken the league by storm once again. And I don't think we, anyone expected to see, you know, veteran Joey Votto to just take a turn like that and do to turn into, you know, a prime version of himself. But I mean, it has been a season where, you know, these 30 year olds uh, are taking over again and look like the, uh, the days of old in the past, uh, in the past decade. Cause we look at a lot of the guys on the giants. And so I'm sure Joey Votto is like, I'm seeing what Brandon Crawford and Buster Posey have been doing this year. I can do that too. I think he's been the huge piece for the reds and why they have been so dominant late um, offensively. And, and as we know, their offense was their is their only shot. I think, going forward and, and you know what they're doing right now is not to be uh you know overstated or understated i think that this team is rightfully where they deserve to be and they've been playing well yeah and the thing with joey Votto is he's starting to hit the long ball again he has 23 homers this year and he's got a 575 slugging percentage We've always known Joey Votto the past several years as a guy who kind of can hit the ball out of the ballpark whenever he wants, but he's always seemed much more keen on taking walks, seeing as many pitches as possible, and working the pitch counts. And while he's still doing all of that stuff that he's been always been known to be one of the best at throughout his career, now he's starting to – the power surge is coming. He had a crazy stretch of like 14 home runs in just a few weeks uh, recently over <clears throat> in the second half of the season. So you're absolutely right. Uh, he has been on a tear lately, and that's one of the reasons the Reds have gotten back into it. That's one of the reasons I'm also a little bit leery of the Reds because how long can these guys keep it going? Uh, because when it comes down to it, the Padres also have a really good lineup, and I just like the reputations on the back of their baseball cards a little bit more. With Tatis, we know what he's going to bring you. The Padres uh, really struggled when he was out when it's one of the big reasons they have uh, fallen out of the wild card spot was because Tatis missed a bunch of time. But he's back now doing his thing, just mashing homers. 
and just completely changing uh, the electricity in that stadium and around that ball club. They just seem to really get motivated around him. And that's why <clears throat> I do favor the Padres here. Also, guys like Jake Cronesworth, Adam Frazier, Manny Machado. I think they're going to hold up a little bit better overall uh, throughout the uh, rest of the season and then maybe potentially into the wild card game than I feel the Reds get players will. Yeah, I think that the um, the Padres, like you were mentioned, they have the more um, – uh, not the more favorable schedule, but they have the more um, the lineup that's you know more proven and is like the I trust these guys in down in this playoff stretch. And, and the thing with you know Tatis has been weird is he the the question mark with him is if he can stay healthy because he keeps picking up you know um, these nicky knack uh, injuries that have just like it kind of sideline him for a couple of weeks and then he comes back and he hits like two home runs every single time. And it's, uh, it, you wonder why this guy, you know, is the leading the MVP candidate. And that's why, cause you know, he'll play less games, but he just, his stats are unbelievable. And, and when you have an electric clubhouse an electric guy like that, it's hard to bet against that team, even when they are slumping, like they have been, uh, you know, in the second half of the season. Yeah, and moving on here to the NL East race because that's starting to heat up as well. Uh, when we last, um, when we left off on this podcast, the Mets were in first place, and I made a bit of a bold prediction saying that not only would the Phillies be better going out after the trade deadline, that they would actually overtake the Mets and win the division. And I looked like a genius for about six games because right after I said that, the Phillies went on a six-game win streak. But then they had to play the Braves, and the Braves are red hot right now. One of the hottest teams in baseball. They've currently won nine straight games. They're sitting atop the division now. They have a five-game lead on the Phillies after uh, the Phillies just a few weeks ago had the lead in the division. What have you seen out of the Braves that has just been fueling this run, even though their best player, Ronald Acuna, is out for the season? Uh, I see a team that just isn't you know, quitting. I think that they... Could have easily just said, you know, this isn't our season. We lost Ronald. We were barely hanging around 500. Pitching's not good at all. Instead, the deadline, they did something that shocked a lot of people. They were buyers. They bought a bunch of players that, like, you know, could fill those holes that they, that's left behind by a player like Ronald Acuna. And they just, you know, have grinded and they've just put together great stretches behind, you know, Freddie Freeman, Ozzy Albies, Danby Swanson. And then I think the biggest piece that needs to be, you know, mentioned more that people aren't really recognize this is that Austin Riley might just be a superstar hitter in today's game because he this year like last year we saw flashes there's been flashes the past couple years he was a a big time prospect for them but this year he's just taken over he's gone to that next level and and he I think he is you know replacing some of the production that you lose when uh you lose Ronald Acuna and there's still a lot of you know electricity and, and you know fan support and just Great things going in that clubhouse, and, and this is a team that looks like the team that we thought was uh, that we were going to have when they uh, came into the season. And, and I just think that you know, the first half, a lot of things can go uh, one way or the other. But uh, if you really find yourself in the second half, you can make these runs, and that's what they're doing. I think that they are the, the favorite for the NL East. Uh, and we're finally seeing the team that was expected. Mm-hmm. And their pitching has really started to come together too. And that's one of the big reasons there. 16 and three since the start of August. But I, I think you're right. This is another team that is finally starting to hit again. I mean, we talked for so long in the season of none of these teams could really hit. And now it's kind of been the uh, key factor is just the teams that have started to hit the ball and put up runs consistently are 
winning games and they're doing better than everybody else right now in the standings. Freddie Freeman is following up his MVP season with another very good season. Uh, he's been phenomenal. You mentioned Austin Riley's been good. Dansby Swanson has kind of bounced back and is starting to hit the ball really well again. Ozzy Alsby's is hitting the ball really well. So there's a lot going well for the Braves. And also they their pitching's been a little bit better recently. Oscar Yona, they recently got back. Uh, his ERA is under three. So if he keeps that going going forward, that'll be a huge addition for them. Charlie Morton has looked pretty good all season long. And so he could be their kind of ace that they need going forward in the playoffs. He's maybe not the tip tip of the iceberg type ace that you really want to win a world series, but he's still a pretty good pitcher to have going forward as your number one to step on the mound. And as for the Phillies, I still think that there's a chance that maybe this team can get in, but they're going to have to start turning it around quickly. They can't do any more of these hot and cold stretches where they play some weaker teams. They win a bunch of games, but then they can't beat any of the good teams in the standings. Cause that's just not going to get you very far and it's not going to lead to any long-term success. They still have, a shot. Bryce Harper is still putting himself right atop the MVP conversation, uh, and they still have some pretty good pitching. Overall, I just think they've lost too many close games. They've lost a lot of run one, one run games recently, and that's been pretty much the biggest uh, deciding factor. And if the Braves don't cool down, they could end up coasting to this division uh, title. You know, I think with the Phillies, it's something that uh, I think has kind of been overlooked is that we make fun of the Mets for being the Mets at this point. But we might need to start looking at the Phillies and thinking, yeah, they're that type of team as well, where they were really good, uh, had some great stretches and even won a World Series towards the end of the the 2000s there. But I think that since then, they really have not put together teams that are playoff caliber. They have big names. They have a guy in Bryce Harper who's putting up MVP numbers right now, but they just can't get over the hump for some reason, like. I don't understand why they have they have good pitching. Zach Wheeler's been incredible this year and is someone that definitely I think is in the Cy Young uh, you know, uh conversation. And and I just don't know what it is. They just can never get over the hump. This team always comes in as a playoff threat and always is looking at like third or fourth in the division. Uh this year it looks like they might be fighting for second. I don't think they have what it takes to, you know, compete with the Braves at this point. Mm-hmm. And then also you mentioned the Mets. They've just been kind of free-falling. They've lost eight of their past 10 games. Javi Baez and Francisco Lindor are due to come back soon, but it might be too little too late out of those guys. They have just completely fallen apart without DeGrom, and I think that's been the biggest factors because every, obviously everybody knew any game they have DeGrom pitching there uh, favored to win no matter who it is they're playing, no matter how bad their offense is doing. It didn't matter because DeGrom was that good, and I think – after it was announced that he was going to miss the rest of the season, even though he hadn't played several weeks leading up to that, I think that kind of uh, was a huge factor because they seemed to just lose some life in that clubhouse. That's when they really just started uh, free-falling through the standings, and they just weren't able to win any games. But they also didn't get any help from the schedule makers as they had to play 12 straight games against the two best teams in baseball, the Giants and the Dodgers. I mean, that's, that's a rough stretch, especially with no days off in between. So they didn't really get any help there. But if you want to be the best, you got to beat the best. The Mets uh, had a lot going for them at the beginning of the season. And there was reason for their fan base to believe. But at this point, I don't think the Mets have any shot. Two games under 500, seven games out of the division to make the playoffs. I think what you say about, you know, the DeGrom energy, uh, I think it's definitely true with that team. I think they lack energy. I think they got some of that back when they traded for Javi Baez because there was like a stretch, like right after the the deadline when he had the massive tank. Pete Alonso looked like rookie Pete Alonso for like a couple weeks. And this team looked like, okay, we're here. We'll get Lindor back. Maybe we get DeGrom back. 
and, and this, let's go, we got this. And then uh, Baez went out and he's back now. But in that time that he was out and they were missing their their stars, it's just is an unhealthy team that's inconsistent. And I just, there's no way I think that they can, you know, reach the playoffs this year. They'll be an interesting team that I think, you know, to look at in the offseason uh, with their with their new owner and how they've shown, you know, their way to make moves over the past year and, uh, and you know, how they're throwing money around. It'll be interesting to see if they try to, you know, maybe move a couple packages or prospects or if they even just try to jump at, you know, some of the big money free agencies. Uh, you would I- ideally think that they would try to bring Baez back and then look somewhere else, to, maybe in the outfield to fix something up. But I-, I don't think they have it this year. I think they got to start looking towards next year. Yeah, and there's going to be a question of whether or not Baez even wants to come back. Francisco Lindor yeah. is locked into his big contract. But if you're Javi Baez, uh, why would you necessarily want to come back to the Mets if the money and the situational fit isn't right for, uh, for them? Obviously, he wouldn't be able to play his natural position shortstop as long as Francisco Lindor is there. And uh, recently, Steve Cohen, their new owner, uh, kind of called out both of them in the media, uh, saying that they were just kind of overhyped, uh, um, uh, saying that they weren't hitting the ball as well as what he was expecting them to. And while he wasn't directly calling them out, it was pretty clear to everybody uh, what he was saying and who he was talking about, essentially saying that those two needed to be better. And while he may not be wrong, it's also not the thing a guy like Javi Baez probably wants to hear just a few weeks into uh, playing on his new team there. So honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if he completely walked from the Mets and didn't even uh, consider going back there in the offseason. He should have no shortage of suitors uh, looking after him. I'm not sure if he's going to get the big contract that he may be expected to get a year or two ago uh, when he was a free agent. But he's still going to get a very sizable one, something that'll set him up for life and should be uh, plenty enough money to make it more important where the situational fit is and where he can win going forward. I think the biggest selling point has got to be just the fact that he's playing with Francisco and door. I think the, they're two Puerto Ricans and that was the big selling point when he won, got traded there. Uh, I think that's about all the Mets have to actually entice him to come back. There are probably, you know, other places where he'd be more comfortable. There's a chance where he could even end up back in Chicago. He said he wouldn't rule that out. I think there's been rumors for a while that he might end up in like Miami. I, I, there, like you said, I mean, there'll be plenty of suitors for him. It's going to be a wild open uh, shortstop market this offseason, and people are going to bounce around. He won't be the top name of the list, but he will be, you know, up there as one of the key guys you want to look for and get. So it'll be interesting to see how the Mets, you know, deal with that. And if Javi Baez wants to stay in New York, uh, even if it's playing for the Mets. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing wrapping up on the Mets here is they need Noah Syndergaard and Jacob deGrom to both come back and be healthy, but we've seen it year after year after year after year. Ever since this team went to the World Series, they just have not been able to keep those two guys healthy, and they had plenty of opportunities several years ago to trade one or both of them for a huge haul of prospects or Major League Ready players that would have really set them up nicely but they decided not to roll the dice on a trade and to keep both those guys, hoping that they would eventually get healthy and be the best one-two in the league. And they have that potential to be one of the best one-twos we've ever seen in the league, but neither one of them have been able to really put together any long strings of health. And I think that's why the Mets have really been suffering because of that. So there's always a chance going forward that this team is really good. They still have Marcus Stroman and, and Taiwan Walker. So if all four of those guys were to be healthy and pitching well next season, the Mets would have a, by far the best starting rotation in baseball. But I don't really see that happening, and I just see another. I just see more doom and gloom in the Mets' future. I mean, simply said, it's uh, they're a good team on paper, but as soon as they hit the field, it's just not the same. They have the the great guys, but you know injuries have plagued them uh, forever. It seems 
And, and I think that's just how it's going to be. And, you know, you wish them some luck because, again, it's a good team on paper. You'd like to see if they could do well. But uh, ultimately, that that's just the game and that's just how it's going to be. And staying on the East Coast here, but moving over to the American League, you didn't think we really just weren't going to talk about the Yankees uh, moving in or moving into second place, passing the Red Sox. They're the hottest team in baseball right now, having won nine games in a row. They have a league best 3.13 ERA since the All-Star break, which is interesting because they didn't go out and acquire any pitching at the trade deadline. Rather, they just went out for hitting. And while their offense has improved, it's really been the pitching that's been the Cadillac uh, behind their recent run here to get them back into playoff contention. Uh, Brian Cashman starting to look like a genius again. Uh, he was not in very good graces of a lot of Yankees fans the past few months, but it's finally starting to turn around and look all right. Aaron Boone is doing something I've never seen him do in the past few years with the Yankees. He's actually managing baseball games. What have you seen from the Yankees in, to fuel their run? I think I, their, uh, you know, their acquisitions at the trade deadline are sort of paying off. Joey Gallo, although hasn't been you know a great hitter since he's put on a Yankees uniform, I think he is definitely you know improving the outfield. He adds an option in the lineup, and, and it's kind of given the shakeup that the team I think needed. You know, having Anthony Rizzo, a very solid veteran at first base, and then also Rodney Odor has been very solid over the stretch. So I think adding those lefties into the lineup to give the team vers- uh, versatility as well as, you know, different defensive options has been incredible for the team. Like you said, the the league best ERA in that stretch uh, it has definitely been the big factor because as we know with the Yankees, it's always about their pitching. Uh, they've always had a solid bullpen, but can the starters get it done? And they have been, uh, you know, recently. I'd say the only guy that you really have question marks about is uh, Andrew Heaney recently, which was the one acquisition they made at the uh, trade deadline pitching. And Yankee fans like to forget that because, you know, he's kind of a blemish. But, you know, I think what they've done is they, they've put together a team that actually looks like it can win baseball games. I mean, it's a lot more energy with the squad. Uh, they're not, you know, just walking around dead in the water if all of New York hating them. I think there's a lot more uh, energies in the fan base. And, and I think that that's really fueling them. I think there's a lot, a lot more, you know, feel-good stories in them. They're just a great narrative in baseball right now. They've really pushed, and, and I think that's where where the assists kind of come from, where they've you know made that push into the second or the second place in the American League East and the first in the wild card. There is this is the most energy I've seen the Yankees team and the fan base have since 2017. And remember, in 2018 and 2019, they won 100 games in each of those seasons. But yet their energy level didn't match what they have right now because they're winning baseball games a different way. They're playing close games. They have uh, by far the best record in baseball in one-run games, which is a huge statistic. And it's kind of ironic because in the past they always have had great bullpens, but the bullpen is kind of in shambles right now. Aroldis Chapman just recently came back, but he's still not at his best self. So hopefully he gets uh, <clears throat> hopefully he starts getting going forward uh, here in the end of August and then into September, and he's at his best uh, by the end of September. But Zach Britton was looking rough before hey, he was recently put on the IL today. And then a lot of their other relievers outside of Chad Green just have not uh, been very effective so far. And it's made for some really interesting games because it doesn't quite matter what the score is uh, for a Yankees game. Going into the seventh, eighth, ninth innings, we're used to seeing those just be automatic if you have a leave. But, it, uh, but it's anything but that now. Uh, there was a game playing Kansas City Royals where each team scored from the seventh through the eleventh innings, at least one run in each of those innings, because neither bullpen could nail it down. 
Uh, but I think one of the big things we've seen is the stolen bases. The Yankees actually lead the MLB in stolen bases uh, since the All-Star break. Mind you, they were last place in stolen bases going into the All-Star break. There's just been a huge shift. Aaron Judge is stealing bases now again. They have Andrew Velazquez, the hometown kid who they just recently called up, and he's just a huge energy hustle guy. He's been stealing bases for them. Tyler Wade is getting more playing time, stealing bases. And then there's Luke Voigt, who's starting to put his money where his mouth is now as he hit over 400 this past week after telling the media that he said he deserves to start after being the home run champion last year and that he still got plenty left in the tank. I think there were a lot of Yankees fans not too sure what to make of that, thinking that we just got Anthony Rizzo, who was really good uh, in his first few games after coming over to the Yankees before he was sidelined with COVID-19. But since then, Luke Voigt won a player of the week and has been carrying the Yankees to some of their victories. I think Luke Voigt is a guy that has just made the play at, uh, at Yankee Stadium. He's great at driving the ball uh, the other way, and he just hits, he just masters baseballs. Uh, it's like, really good to see him, um, you know, find his way back in the lineup uh, at the DH spot, which is what I think a lot of people were calling for um, when he wasn't playing. And, and I think it just adds more depth to the lineup. And that you, like you mentioned, it's been, you know, a different, like it's been night and day since he's gotten back in there. And, and he's really like had this, uh, this aggressive mindset behind him and saying, you know what, they're kind of doubting me. I'm going to go and, you know, put my money more, uh, put my mouth, um, or put my money where my, my mouth is and just say, you know what, I was great last year. I can be great again. You just got to give me that chance. And, you know, he's really he's really doing it. Uh-huh. And there's still a lot of hope for the future. Of course, the Yankees always have half their roster on uh, the injury list at any given time. They have Luis Severino due to come back uh, shortly sometime in the end of the season, maybe. Uh, Corey Kluber could come back as well. Uh, other guys, uh, Glaber Torres and Gio Urshela, still has a chance that they could come back. Miguel Andujar, who hasn't been much of a contributor at all the past couple of seasons, there's still a chance he could come back along with Clint Frazier. So even if some of these guys don't even get up into the lineup or make the roster, it's like it still gives you options in case other guys get hurt, in case guys start slumping. Now the Yankees are just going to have their full roster back. There's going to be so much energy around this team. They might potentially have a lot of pitching. And, you know, Luis Severino and Corey Kluber, they might not even make the starting rotation, but they could be the answers that the Yankees have been looking for in the bullpen. I, honestly, I wouldn't be that opposed to seeing Luis Severino become the new closer if he it gets back to throwing triple digits like he was before his injury. That could be a huge addition because he's always had a great one-two pitch mix, which would buy very well for moving to the bullpen. Uh, but then we've praised the Yankees a lot here. Uh, they're still four and a half games back from the Rays in first place uh, with uh, six head-to-head games left to go between those two teams. So there's still plenty of baseball left for them. The Yankees are two games up on the Red Sox for the first wild card spot. And then the Oakland Athletics are only half a game behind the, the, the Red Sox for that spot. So they'd be two and a half behind the Yankees. Uh, the Seattle Mariners are three and a half games behind uh, the Boston Red Sox. And the Toronto Blue Jays are five and five games out of that second wild card spot behind the Red Sox. Do you think the Yankees spot is uh, relatively safe here? Or do you think these other teams are going to continue to make a run and it's going to be a close, uh, maybe four or five team race down the stretch for the wild card? I think where the Yankees are, they're in a comfortable spot out of the two spots that you could be in, uh, having that slightly, you know, two game, you know, cushion from that Boston where everybody else is really close. But I don't think they're in a place where you could say that they're definitely safe. This is going to be the first wild card team. I think all those teams, uh, barring maybe Seattle, even though they've been you know playing really well, I think that 
all those teams should be in the mix the rest of the way and, and will, you know, give them a fight, especially in that second wild card spot. I think the Yankees have a are in a really good spot right now to maybe make a push to keep the momentum high and to try and build a lead. But I won't necessarily say it's safe, especially with the teams behind them. Because we even though Boston's free falling, we've seen how good they've been this year. Oakland's always incredible, always a team that's gonna be right in the mix. So you can never count them out. Toronto's got great guys and, and they've just kind of had a, a poor timing with some of the games that they've lost and you know bad schedule. But I think They'll, they'll always they'll be in the mix as well because they could just have a really good week next thing you know they're right back in it so I, I think those teams are there you know to be you know uh threatened and and to be in the watch or on the watch list because I don't think any of those teams are safe for the second wild card I think it's gonna be a very very enticing race to watch I somewhat disagree with you I do not believe in the Seattle Mariners or the Toronto Blue Jays one bit the Seattle Mariners I think they're kind of a year ahead of maybe really competing for a playoff spot here. They've been better than anybody expected them to be, so we have to give them credit for that. They've also done really well against the teams in the bottom of their division, the Angels and the Rangers, which have kind of boosted their record. The Blue Jays have also been pretty good this season. They have not been able to find any pitching to go along with their uh, powerhouse offense, and that's been the reason that they haven't been able to make any more momentum in the tough American League wildcard race. So I think it's safe to say that those two teams, while they may make a run and make it somewhat close, I don't think there's really a chance that they can uh, jump several teams and several games back in the standings to make the wild card. So I think it's pretty safe to say it's a three-team race for two spots right now. And if it does turn out to be the Yankees-Red Sox in a one-game wild card game, Ooh, that might be the highest rated game in the entire playoffs in the MLB. And that would that would be quite a matchup, where, whether it's at Fenway Park or Yankee Stadium. That would be one of the most uh, hyped up games uh, in recent history in the MLB. Well, what do you think about that? I think if that happened, not only would it be like just great because of the uh, rivalry and the fans, but you know having that pitching duel with Chris Sale back now at full health, Chris Sale versus Garrett Cole would be uh, absolute uh, a great matchup. I think that would be something that would be just must watch TV and, and would be one of those iconic matchups that we've been seeing since this wild card uh, duels and like that wild card game is you know coming to existence. Well, I think you made one crucial mistake there. While you're right, it would be one of the greatest games uh, in, in since the wild card's existence. I'm not so sure Garrett Cole is actually going to start the game. Sure, he's making three hundred plus million dollars. But is he really the Yankees' ace right now? You know, obviously he's been pretty. He's been pretty good. He has an ERA under three for this season. Everyone was way over exaggerating uh, the whole sticky stuff, illegal substance saga, which we're going to touch on a little bit later in this podcast. So uh, overall, Garrett Cole has been really good. But how about rookie Luis Heel uh, for the Yankees? He has pitched fifteen and two thirds innings so far and given up zilch. Not a single run so far, and that includes a start against the Boston Red Sox. I have to give him a shout-out here because I almost forgot to mention his name. He has been incredible, and he's kind of he's come out of nowhere to really implement a, a spot in the Yankees' starting rotation. And <laughs> all jokes aside, even if he's not their game one pitcher in the playoffs, I have to believe he's going to pitch sometime in the Yankees' first three games if it were to go that far because he's been that good. Obviously, it's a small sample size of only a few starts, but as of right now, it looks like he's going to be the Yankees' uh, plans for the future. And so, they. But, but my point is, their starting pitching has been legitimately very good, one of the best in baseball uh, in the past month, month and a half. 
and they kind of have a multitude of options of what they want to go to in a wild card game. So even if they do have to use a Garrett Cole or somebody like that on the last or the second to last game of the season, it might not necessarily be uh, the worst thing in the world like some people would have thought a few months ago because they do have other options. Whereas with the Red Sox, Chris Sale has had a very good career. But do we really uh, tremble having to face him at this point right now going into a wild card game? Because I don't think they would. And I think that would bode very well for advantage Yankees. Yeah, but I think you could also go the other way. I don't think Boston exactly, you know, trembles facing Garrett Cole or any other starter. I don't know if they're, uh, you know, they're they're playing great. But, like, let's be honest here. Uh, <laughs> Garrett Cole's not been the, the Cy Young winner. He's been, he's been all right. Uh, or he's been very good. I think, though... I, I love your optim your optimism there, but um, like if Garrett Cole's not starting that game, then like what are you doing? Like that's that's just like a fireable offense. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I mean, again, I don't. I don't know. That's uh, where you're going. You're just trying to point out nice, really nice young player. But but if the Yankees marched out there and Garrett Cole doesn't start and they lost, <laughs> I mean, they, they would be going at uh, Aaron Boone and, and Brian Cashman's head even more than they already are. <laughs> so I, I love your optimism there. But, you know, I think it would be a Garrett Cole start. I, I still think, uh, you know, the Yankees are in a good spot. They look way, a, a way compl or a completely different team than what we saw earlier this year. Like I said, they have a lot more life. And it should be fun to watch them for the rest of the stretch. They have a really good series um, starting tonight at the time of recording. I think it's even going on uh, about right now uh, against the Braves, who we were also touching earlier, has been one of the other hot teams. So I think that'll be a fun uh, stretch uh, of games here to start the week, as well as they have a couple of real, really important matchups down the stretch. There'll be a team to watch. Yeah, that's sure. a nice little battle there to get ready for uh, the tough upcoming matchups you have ahead. Both those teams are obviously uh, riding high with nine-game win streaks uh, going into the series, which is the first time that's happened in baseball since 1901. So over 100 years there. Uh, that's pretty incredible. One of these teams, it's a, just a two-game series, so there's a chance one team might walk away with an 11-game win streak and keep going from there. And speaking of streaks, we have to talk about what's going on at the other end of the American least American League East standings. My God, has it been rough for the Baltimore Orioles. Losers of the past 18 games. They're currently 38 and 85. That's just a 0 .309 winning percentage, which means they're only winning just over 30% of their games for the entire season. That is almost unheard of. They're starting to uh, close in on one of the worst winning percentages in baseball history, which, of course, they just recently did a couple of years ago in 2019. But not only that, they're closing in on the worst losing streak of all time. They're only three games away from the American League record, which was set by da -da -da -da, the Baltimore Orioles back in 1988 when they opened their season 0-21, which is just something else. It's one thing to go on a 21-game losing streak, but to do it to open the season. That is dreadful. But then the major league record is held by the 1961 Phillies for 23 losses. The Orioles have their next three upcoming games, which would be their potentially 19th, 20th, and 21st loss, are going to be against the Los Angeles Angels. So they're a mediocre team, a winnable matchup there as long as Shohei Otani isn't pitching. But then their three games after that is against the Tampa Bay Rays. You can probably just pencil all three of those games against the Rays in his L's because the Rays offense has just been red hot and they've been sneakily one of the best teams in baseball. They've just been consistent doing their thing. Haven't really blinked at the fact that the Yankees have been uh, catching up to them right, lately. 
So do you think there's a chance the Orioles take one of those games against the Angels and avoid uh, breaking the record for longest losing streak? Um, you know, anything can happen in baseball, but with this Orioles team, I'm not so sure. <laughs> I think it's going to take a massive performance from uh, Cedric Mullins and and maybe, you know, a four or five RBI game from Mountcastle. I think one of those massive performances from one of those guys could get it done. But I mean, this team, it's just not, it's really glim or grim right now. And, and it's kind of a shocker too, because like we don't expect them to be any good. But like this far into the rebuild, they have a lot of really solid prospects. But like you'd think that they would be better than this by now. Like they've been they've been consistently at the very, very bottom of the league for like what three, four years now. And you think by now they would have a couple more guys and maybe they'd spend a little bit more money where they could have a serviceable roster. But I mean, this team, it's like they they definitely are a potential, you know, record record setting team here and, and they could happen this week. I don't I don't have any like real upside or hope that maybe they won't reach that mark because you never know the way they've been playing. Like they could easily set this record. Yeah. And I mean, it's just, they just have nothing going for them right now outside of Cedric Mullins. They have a few decent players on offense like Mikel Franco, Ryan Mountcastle, and uh, of course, Trey Mancini uh, who have been kind of holding it down and they put up some runs every once in a while, but their pitching is just dreadful. Their ace, John Means, still has pretty good stats over the season with a 3.5 ERA. But his ERA in the past seven games has been close to six, which was somehow the best on their team in that span because the, their leader in wins is Matt Harvey, who has an ERA of close to seven. And then their next best pitcher, Watkins, has an ERA of just under six. I mean, they just have no pitching right now. They have no starting pitching, uh, no bullpen pitching. They're giving up close to 10 runs every single game now, it seems like. And at this point, I, I don't believe in their rebuild. And I've said this for several years now, ever since they kind of started it in 2018 going into 2019, because they always kind of preached that they were going for fundamentals, but they never seemed to be a fundamentally sound team. But that's the thing with the Orioles is every time you watch them, you just you see mistakes out of their major league ball players that you don't see at the high school or even the college level. Uh, and a lot of times even at younger levels like that. I mean, I'm watching the Little League World Series on ESPN the past a few weeks, and those guys are making plays that it almost looks like the Orioles can't make. Uh, obviously, they're not any better because they're 12 years old, but it's simple stuff like hitting the cutoff man, throwing to the right base, uh, situational baseball, uh, advancing runners, things that Orioles have just been terrible at. It doesn't even really look like they're trying to win these games at this point. And honestly, I don't think they're going to beat the Angels. Shohei Otani is pitching in the second game of that series. There's a good chance they do take one of those because the Angels aren't playing for much anymore. And they've kind of run down with a lot of their guys injured. Trout's probably not coming back at this point. Same with Rendon. But at this point, I'm going to predict the Orioles to break the losing streak. Yeah, I mean, at some point, you kind of have to like think about the product that they're putting on the field. Like they're charging MLB prices for people to go watch these guys. And like, you got to feel bad for, you know, the fans. Uh, like th this isn't an MLB team by, by any means. And, and at some point you got to do something at least fun, like call up Adley. Like why is Adley not on this roster? And, and I was listening um, this morning to Ken Rosenthal on the athletics baseball show. And he was talking about this and, and he was saying like, Hey, the the whole like news or like the way that the team's like talking about this, they're saying they're right on track. Like this is where they, this is where they want to be. Like 
what you want to be you know uh losing 18 in a row like because you have a good farm system like i don't understand like i don't care about this like absolute tanking i i it barely works like it sure it worked for the the astros it worked for the cubs since then it's not really been that great and those like honestly seem like they've been uh they were kind of flukish because like there's a lot of stuff with the astros with the cheating scandal all that stuff they were still they're still a really good team they were still really built really well um the cubs that was like a couple years stretch they got barely squeaked the world series out there they got one they ended the goal but after that it was a complete collapse and now it seems like they're heading that way again but like teams like the tigers who again have a great farm system but have just been bottom feeders for year after year now and, and it's just kind of like what are we doing like uh, and that's where recent news of the them bringing up a, a possible league salary minimum, like they proposed this, and, and I don't know how likely it is to happen, but uh, I think that doing that where they raise the what the salary is, the minimum salary is for a team like the Orioles to spend money, it, it will more incentivize those guys to actually put a good product on the field. And, and I think that's what the league needs to kind of counteract tanking. I, I think that... Um, tanking has really, really de- like brought on these teams like the Orioles where they think it's okay to be this bad and to be almost setting records. Like we saw the, the Arizona Diamondbacks who for all reasons have had good players and they've like, I've been trying to build something, but like there's no reason they should be as bad as they were at the beginning of the year. And there's no reason the Orioles should be as bad as they are now. And there's no reason they should be you know, chucking out like a minor league baseball team and charging an MLB price for them. Yeah, and the proposal you mentioned is something that the MLB is going to consider uh, at the end of the season here. It would uh, put the league minimum salary cap spending at $100 million, meaning that each team has to spend uh, that much money, obviously, uh, to field their team. I don't really know how they're planning on implementing that. That'll be one of the things I'd be curious to see uh, going into the offseason when they do the new proposals. But also, they also... Along with that, they had an $180 million uh, soft cap, which after you uh, go past that, you would go into the luxury tax threshold. That would really hurt teams like the Yankees, Dodgers, and Mets, who have kind of lived in the luxury tax already, uh, because that's somewhere around 195 right now. And that's supposed to be keep going up to keep up with inflation uh, every single year. So if they knocked that down $15, 20000000 million, that would really affect those teams. Uh, but... I don't know if I really support the proposal because of that reason of how are these teams going to pay for it? Uh, the ones that are used to the ones that don't even uh, generate a hundred million dollars of revenue for their owners each season. And right now there's currently uh, 10 teams with um, a payroll under a hundred million dollars for this season. The Orioles have the second lowest at just over 50 million. So they would essentially have to double their payroll going into next season. That would be a huge boost for them because they could use that on, very meaningful veteran players who are looking for a new home or maybe uh, in between contracts and had a down year. So they're trying to rejuvenate themselves. There's, there's a lot of team could do with $50 million, even for a team like the Orioles that nobody wants to go to. But as far as that proposal goes, it's tough when you have uh, the Cleveland Indians spending right now under 50 million. The Pirates are just over 50. The Marlins are just over 50. And then you have the Rays coming in at 70 million. Credit to the Oakland Athletics. They're actually at $90 million payroll right now. So at least they're trying to spend some money. But I agree that I think a lot of these teams, like the Orioles and the Indians, for example, we've seen them spend a lot of money in the past. So it's not like they don't have that money. It's just they're not investing anything into their teams. 
So their teams aren't any good. So people don't want to go to the ballpark. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, yeah, if you if you invest more in your team, more people are going to go to the games because they're going to be more competitive. Like that's a the clear difference and you will make more money if you spend more. Uh, but a lot of these owners will like to say that there's no money in baseball, even though there clearly is. And that just makes it, you know, that's just a way for them to justify being, you know, this bad. Because, again, like what you mentioned with the athletics, they're, they're spending like $90 million. The Rays are another like example under this spending like seventy million, but these teams are uh, these teams are teams that never spend over a hundred million. They're always lower on the lower end of the payroll, um, but they are always competitive. They always find ways to be competitive. They're smart about how they you know spend their money and how they uh, they go about you know like constructing their team. And, and like we look at those teams, like you can be competitive again. The Rays spending seventy million, they made the World Series last year, and, and they almost won it. So how come the Orioles or or the Indians or the Pirates or the Tigers, like how come they can't spend more money and you know actually field a team that makes sense? And if you're not going to do that, like I said, then bring up your prospects like Adley Rushman because I'm sure they'd get way more experience and way more reps if they're playing in the in the MLB. Uh, than sitting uh, sitting in Triple A right now with your team that's basically a four A 4A squad like it's not <laughs> it's not an MLB team and, and I think that like teams are just scared of like I guess maybe the the free agency like structure you know that I think there's just a lot of things with the CBA that they need to like reconstruct uh, how this league works but there definitely needs to be a way to you know make more competitive balance and to make these teams more competitive uh, and discourage tanking because right now like there are way too many teams that are just bottom feeders that are easy pickings for all the teams above them and they are just disgraceful products that no one's going to want to go see and like the Baltimore fans and you know this you know being in the Maryland, Maryland area like there are a lot of Baltimore fans and they genuinely love the team and I'm sure it just sucks that they're they're ownership and their their front office is sitting there like saying just wait just wait until 2025 will be great for like two years and then we'll do this all over again and they have to suffer through that like i just don't think that's fair uh to those fans and that fan base yeah it's really not and <clears throat> i mean first off starting with the adley rushman point we talked about that over two months ago we said they should have brought him up because they really had nothing to play for even back then and uh, you know, we discussed it and there was certain controversy over whether they should um, have him lose his uh, rookie status this year or wait a little bit longer and then have him eligible for a seventh year uh, before he would hit free agency looking way down the line. But the fact of the matter is that's all moot point now because they can bring him up and he would still he still wouldn't lose his rookie eligibility this year. He would have it for next year. So why not bring him up? He's the number one prospect in all of baseball. He appears to be major league ready. Everybody expected him to be up at uh, some point midseason. I mean, like, what are you doing? How are you? How are you going to take that away from not only him, his family, the major league guys, but then the fans as well? They deserve something to be excited about when they turn on an Orioles game at night. And right now, there really is nothing. And then uh, back to the point about how certain teams like the Rays and the Athletics have been able to do a lot uh, with very little money. And you know I mean putting that towards the Orioles and other teams like the Indians as well. They need to just invest in their entire farm system, not just going out trying to get the number one overall pick and get one really good prospect because that's only going to change so much. The way you turn a franchise around 
is by just drafting and then most importantly, developing really well. You have to get a stockpile of young arms and you have to figure out how to bring some guys in that can develop those arms. Any Orioles fan will tell you that's the thing they have always been historically bad at is developing their young arms. And we've seen it time and time again with their pitchers, including someone who was uh, competing for a Cy Young in the National League, Kevin Gossman, was a very high prospect of the Orioles for years and then failed with them, never really got it going. Boom, he goes to the Giants. Now he's a Cy Young candidate. Same thing with Jake Arrieta, Brian Mattis, and several other guys over the recent history of the Orioles. So you have to change the culture of that entire team. You can't just sit back and go, hey, we have this guy, this guy, and that guy coming up in the next few years. We're going to be really good going forward in the future. That's not the way it works. You have to start turning it around right away. And if they don't do something to fix their pitching uh, quick, this could be a trend for the next 10, 15 years for the Orioles where they never really do make it out of MLB purgatory. And then another note uh, where you mentioned that some of the owners were will try to trick their fan bases into thinking that they don't have money when they really do. I think a good example of that looking at the entire breakdown of the payroll list is the San Diego Padres. They have the eighth highest payroll at $175 million right now. You know, just maybe five, six years ago, the Padres were in the bottom five in payroll because they said they had no money. They would consistently spend under uh, 50 or $60 million a season, and now they're way up at the top. Uh, sure, there's been some changes in San Diego, some cultural changes that's um, shifted that. But still, that's a good example of if you start investing in your team like they did when they brought in Eric Cosmer, Manny Machado, and then, of course, Tatis came up and lit a spark uh, under that ball club. People will start to come out and support you. They'll start to buy jerseys. Your TV deals, when those expire, will look a lot nicer if people are actually watching the games as well. And that's just a clear example of how quickly things can turn around as far as a revenue goes in baseball. I mean, you look at Tatis, like, sure, he's a, probably a one, like, a generational talent, but, like... It, you you look at it where like you said where San Diego was five years ago. They they weren't the face of like the team of baseball like they are kind of now. It seems like they're right up there with the Dodgers on the West Coast is just this incredible team that uh, everybody wants to watch and is always on national games. And, and like you said, they did it because they invested in their team. Uh, their GM AJ Prowler when he came in, he had a clear vision. He knew what he was doing, uh, how he wanted to develop the right guys, how he wasn't afraid to move prospects. I think some of these teams have you know, caught up in, we have all these prospects, we have all these prospects, like you said, and they don't develop them. And then they're nothing when they get to the big league level, if they even get there at all. And, and you sit there, it's like, you if you're the Orioles, I got Adley Brushman. Uh, I have Grayson, uh, their, their top pitching prospect. I'm blanking on his last name at the moment. But uh, they, those guys look like they could be – Two very good prospects. I think they're both rated top 20, if not uh, top 15. And, and they are uh, guys that they could be actual cornerstones for your roster. And if you start moving some of these other guys for actual real veterans, start spending a little bit more money, you have a competitive team again. I don't think it's as hard as they kind of, you know, make it seem to be because there's always those veteran free agents that are available or out there. And you look at the guys that were on their roster just a couple of years ago that are producing for other clubs. Uh, like there's a really no reason why they shouldn't be doing well. Like, like you mentioned, Kevin Gosman, a guy that left a couple of years ago uh, that, that got moved Dylan Bundy on the angels. He's not like an elite pitcher, but he definitely would be an elite pitcher in the, in the Baltimore Orioles bullpen or uh, not bullpen uh, starting rotation. 
uh, and like guys like Jonathan Scope, who's playing for the Tigers, and he's not crazy, but like he's definitely above average hitter and a serviceable big leaguer, which is something that they don't seem to have too many of. So it, it's just like we could go on and on about this all day. I think that that teams just need you know start actually looking at themselves in the mirror and saying we need to do better. And, and I hope that the MLB starts looking at different options and ways to you know actually a you know incentivize teams you know to actually do that yeah and moving on here to one of the bigger storylines around baseball recently and that is on sunday afternoon miguel cabrera finally got the job done and hit his 500th home run become just the 28th player to do so and i believe he was only the fourth player born outside of the united states to hit 500 home runs so shout out to him that he's had a wonderful career one of my all-time top uh, favorite players to watch I think he's the greatest right-handed hitter of this generation easily. The way he is able to just not only hit so many home runs, drive in, uh, get so many hits, drive in so many runs, but the way he works a count, he does not strike out. He never has, even moving into this age of kind of the home run and strikeouts, he never followed that mold. He always was just the same player, the same guy he was when he won the Triple Crown. Uh, he won, he's one of the toughest guys to face if you're a pitcher because he doesn't chase pitches and he could take anything you give him. He can hit it out of the ballpark. He can hit it the other way, hit it off the fence. Whatever he wants to do, he can do it. He's one of the best players of all time, and I think he's going to go down as one of the better hitters of all time with an Albert Pujols, Barry Bonds, guys like that. What would you think about him hitting his 500th homer? Uh, I think it's absolutely great. I think it's a travesty for me that I was watching. It seemed like every game leading up to that, I watched both of the the two games before this against the Blue Jays, and then I they had a afternoon game. I slept in and I missed it, and it was so disappointing. Miggy's one of my favorite players. Uh, I, I have his jersey. I love you know trying around with it. He's just been such a class act and such a you know great guy that. Uh, I just love having him in the game of baseball. He's been incredible. It's such an honor, to, you know, and an exciting thing when someone like that hits such a huge milestone and joins a really exclusive club in the game of baseball. And like you said, he's a generational hitter uh, and someone that will be remembered for a lot of time to, or a lot of time. To yeah. Come. And it's a shame that he wasn't able to have a little bit better of a career. Uh, he was still at the top of his game around 2016, but then, after that, he just got hit really hard with injuries, a lot of lower body injuries. And I can remember times of him going out there. He wasn't even using his legs. He was just using all arms to swing the bat uh, in the past few years because his uh, lower body was that bad. It was just really deteriorating on him. He wasn't able to move very well. He was probably the slowest guy in baseball. So it was kind of a shame he wasn't able to do a little bit more. But he's had such a uh, phenomenal career. Uh, easy uh, first ballot Hall of Famer for sure. But then uh, looking forward... Uh, do you, uh, what players do you think are out there actively right now that are, could be close to joining him on the 500 home run club? Or do you think we'll eventually get there one day? As of right now, Nelson Cruz is the closest right now, which is about 440 homers. But obviously, he's like 50 years old. So <laughs> he, he's the fatherless boomstick. So we'll see how long he keeps playing. Uh, but what are some players that you think are going to catch up to him? I think the number one guy has to be, you know, the good old, the kid, uh, the good old kid from New Jersey, Michael Trout. Uh, at age 30, he's, you know, currently sitting at 310 home runs. He plays in a ballpark where he can just continue to mash and all the teams, like, he, it's just a favorable situation. I, the only thing that could hold him back is injuries. This is the, one of the guys that uh, just all time 
all time great. And if he doesn't get to 500 home runs, it'll be uh, absolute shame. And something probably didn't go uh, right in the second half of his career. So I think Michael Trout is an easy safe pick if you're looking at the next guy who's probably going to join the uh, the club and be or maybe that 29th or 30th. Yeah, guy. I agree with that. At 30 years old and 310 homers, he would have been the first guy I would have picked as well. But I'm going to go a little bit. A little bit off the radar here. I'm not sure how many people would expect him. He was a guy of several years ago, I think everybody would have said, and that is 31-year-old Giancarlo Stanton with 332 home runs is what I had written down in my notes. But as we're doing this podcast, he just hit a home run, so now he's at 333 homers. He's continuing to work his way there. Uh, you know, if it wasn't for the past few seasons, he would be almost a shoe-in for the 500 club. And we'd probably be talking about him potentially getting six, maybe even 700 homers. But he's been so injury riddled these past few years. It's tough to say whether or not whoever have a long enough career to do it. But I think the recent move to the outfield has kind of given him some new life. He seems to have a little bit more of his legs underneath him. He's hitting ropes all over the field. He's getting back to just hitting the ball out of the ballpark. And at only 31 years old, he could have another eight or nine years because obviously he's still locked into that huge contract that's going to go to his age 40 season. So I don't think 170 homers in the next eight, nine years is out of the picture for Stanton as long as he stays somewhat healthy. I think uh, what you said before, it's not everybody's first pick. It's not like the the crazy pick that out there. It's I think it's in you know the realm of possibility. I just think what we've seen with his uh, it was you know health status and the injuries he's had, it, I think those continue. It's, he's definitely not a for sure thing at all. Uh, I think that he's a guy that could be hit bad by some regression, and uh, we'll, we'll see what that. I like you said, you know, maybe he just needs to get back in the outfield, play more consistently, actually have it, you know, his legs uh, moving around a lot more than just sitting on the bench waiting for his time to hit. Maybe that'll help him, but. He's not the guy I would go in number two. The guy I would go in number two, and I think this is someone that uh, is a little controversial around this community, but I think is someone that will reach there and is always underrated or overrated. But it's a guy who came around in the league around the same time as Mike Trout. It's Bryce Harper. I think Bryce Harper is an easy guy to think about. He's going to hit 500. I don't think he'll get to like 600. I think that's completely out of realm. But he's a guy I think could push maybe around 500. He's like you said with John Carlston, he's got a, a long contract that he is obligated to. He plays in such a lefty friendly uh, ballpark in the, in Philadelphia and at uh, 255 at only 29. I think that, you know, the pace that he's on, the player that he is, he. I think is a, a safer bet than John Carlo to go uh, for 500. The thing with Bryce Harper is he's only had three seasons in his major league career where he's hit over 30 home runs. So while he's been pretty consistent doing that, uh, outside of his 42 homer MVP season in 2015, I don't know that he's really always provided the power. It's uh, He's kind of just been more of a contact on base guy first, who obviously slugs really well and still hits a lot of homers. But I don't know if he's the home run tycoon that we kind of thought he was going to be at one point. But I'm going to pick a guy who is followed in Bryce Harper's footsteps quite nicely and did the thing that Bryce Harper wasn't able to do, and that was win a World Series with the Washington Nationals. Of course, I'm talking about 22-year-old Juan Soto, who already has 89 homers to his name. Uh, he just turned 22 as well, because remember, he was just a 19-year-old kid uh, back when they were in the World Series. Soto is one of the best uh, young hitters that I've ever seen. He is so poised at the plate. He is always so locked in that I just 
I can't imagine him not getting there at this point, which is crazy to say because he still has over 400 home runs to go. But at this point in his career, it looks like he's going to continue this upward trajectory uh, to completely running the league. It's going to be him and obviously a few other of the great young players that I'm sure uh, me and you will both get into uh, continuing in this segment. But for now, I just I like Juan Soto at the plate better than everybody else in the league right now in terms of the young players uh, who have a lot of potential outside of the first three guys we mentioned, Trout, uh, Harper, Stanton, uh, <clears throat> them, and then Nelson Cruz, if he's able to play another couple of years. There really isn't any veterans uh, who are closer on pace to getting that 500 club. So then you have to start looking at the young guys, and I think Juan Soto is just better than the rest of them at the plate. I think so. Outside shot and looking at that, I, I like that pick. I think Juan Soto, if you're going to pick a young guy, uh, he's probably the safest option. Ron Lacuna, I think, is also in that mix uh, at 24. He's already at over 100. And, and I think that he's definitely a guy that could you know project to be on pace for that. And, and obviously, Tatis is Fernando Tatis. Who knows what, how many he'll hit. But I, I'm going to go with you know what you, you keep mentioning. And he's 41 years old, but he's an ageless wonder. And that's Nelson Cruz. Like, this guy is still making the All-Star game at 41. He's uh, just under 70 shy from this list. And you know what? There, I don't think there's a reason why he can't play two or three more seasons and get, you know, about 20 to 30 home runs in those years and, and break that. And maybe be, you know, he'll be 40, 43, 44, something like that. And he's joining 29th member of the 500 club. I think it's possible. I'm looking at the down the list. You again, you got, you got those young guys who are close or what's it called look like they're going to project to go there. Um, but you never know if them, uh, an outside shot guy for a veteran that you were looking for might be a Nolan Arenado at, uh, at two sixty at 30, but he's no longer playing at Coors field. So I, even if he's playing some of the favorable division, uh, you know, stadiums and in, in the central, it's just, he's not, he's not going to hit as many home runs as he, uh, would if he stayed his entire career in course. So I'm going to go with Nelly. I think Nelly has an outside shot here. You know, as the ageless wonder, he keeps DH and, you know, for the next couple of years, he might be the next guy. Yeah, on I, mean, I can see it happen. He would have to uh, close out the season with about five, 10 more home runs this year, and then hit 30 in each of the next two seasons in his 42 and age 43 seasons to get there. Unless he would to play in his age 44 season. Who knows? Maybe he's looking at what Miggy did the other day and he's going, yeah, you know what? I'm just going to play till I hit 500 home runs too. And at this point, I wouldn't doubt that he'd be able to do it. It's just a matter of what he wants to do with his career. And so with my last pick, I'm going to go with another young guy here. It's a bit of a decision because I expected you to take one of these young guys. It's pretty much down to two guys who are only 22 years old, uh, Fernando Tatis and Vlad Jr. But at this point, even though Vlad Jr. is the probably the better overall hitter at the plate and he's a little bit younger even though they're both 22 i'm gonna go with fernando tatis fernando tatis has 73 home runs to his career so far injuries have been a little bit uh, of a, a area of concern so far with him as it seems like every season he's missing a little stint at least but if he can find a way to stay healthy and i think he will because he is only 22 years old and it hasn't been anything catastrophic just uh, little injuries here and there. I think he's going to be the face of baseball, probably the best player in baseball uh, once Mike Trout loses that crown. And I, he's having being at already 73 home runs, he has so much easy power. I think he has room to keep growing as a ball player, especially as a hitter. And so I would not be surprised if 15 years from now he joins that club. 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like I touched on before, I think you can project what the unbelievable talent that he has. Who knows how many he's going to hit and when he started as young as he did. Again, him, same thing with Juan Soto. Like these guys are unbelievable hitters, and um, and I think that they will hit many, many more home runs in the career. So it'll be interesting to see when you know they're up at the age of Miggy if they're if they're uh, you know pushing making this list or if they're even way past it by then because who knows. And to close out our show here, we're going to talk about a couple more <clears throat> big storylines that went on in MLB this past uh, past few weeks. For one, we have the Field of Dreams game. Boy, was that something. It got canceled in 2020 uh, because of the short season. They moved it to this year, and it was absolutely a hit. It was every bit as wild, magical, and lived up to all of the hype that it received. It was the most watched regular season game since 2005. And not only that, it had one of the craziest finishes to it, uh, with the Yankees uh, being down three runs going into the top of the ninth, hitting a two uh two-run homers to take the lead, and then Tim Anderson hitting a two-run homer to walk it off in the bottom of the night, uh, bottom of the ninth. What a night that was. It was a very perfect ceremony with Kevin Costner throwing out the first pitch and giving a little speech. Of course, you had the player intros walking up from the corn. I mean, is this heaven? <laughs> I mean, as far as you know, MLB events goes, especially games, it might as well be because that was the best case scenario uh, scenario for uh, that whole situation. That I think the ballpark was well designed, well put together. It really captured what they were going for the the feeling. The having the White Sox there obviously is just great, and then the Yankees. They, they came and they put on a show. And like you said, that ending was absolutely unbelievable. If it was just a regular like national televised game, that would have been a talked about ending. But the fact that it happened while they're doing the Field of Dreams event it is just, you know, really, really great. And I think that this is something that the MLB just needs to continue to do. And they need to do a lot more events like this. And obviously, you're not going to get the same product every time. But, uh, you know. The more they do something fun like this, you know, the more we're going to get attention on the game and get more people that might actually tune in and say, hey, this is yeah, pretty fun. Yeah, and the average ticket price for this game on the resale market, because, of course, there was a whole lot of red tape you had to go through to get a ticket. You had to, either had to be an Iowa resident or a season ticket holder to buy it straight from MLB. But the resale prices were averaging around three grand for a ticket, which is, I mean, these Super Bowl tickets don't even go for that much a lot of the times. And that was just the average ticket, not even the uh, ones right up against the stadium. Of course, it hold, held about 9,000 people. So a pretty good attendance for what they were able to do. It was just absolutely beautiful field, great ceremony. And Rob Manfred did announce that it was going to become an annual tradition. They were going to keep it going moving forward. Next year in 2022, we'll have the Reds going up against the Cubs. So depending on what those teams, two teams look like going into August of next season, maybe not going to be the most hyped up matchup, not like the Yankees and White Sox, because, of course, that was the original uh, matchup in the uh, World Series back in the 1900s when the Chicago Black Sox threw the World Series and created the whole storyline for the Field of Dreams movie. But I, I still expect those ticket prices to be absurd going forward. Everyone in the next uh, five to ten years is going to is going to make it a point. If you're a huge baseball fan or you're a big fan of the movie, is going to want to go to one of those games eventually. So I think the there's there's still going to be a lot of buzz around it, even if it's not quite the same one as the first one. But then something else we need to talk about: Did baseball do a little something something to ensure that that game would be exciting? You know, we talked about how offense has been down, but. The offense was not down in that game. There were those balls were flying out of that ballpark. Do you think that's just the how 
baseballs travel in Iowa, or do you think there was something fishy going on there? I mean, I'm all for conspiracy theories, man. I, I love that, but I mean, let's let's be honest here. I think it was just a matter of the fact that you're looking who was pitching of Andrew Heaney on the mound. Obviously, that was going to be a home run show yeah, going into it. I think most people thought it was going to be that. Uh, I thought it was really interesting though at the end with uh, how Liam Hench- uh, Hendricks was kind of getting hit around by the Yankees. Uh, I just thought it was a really enjoyable game, and, and I think that you know people were just rising to the occasion. I don't think it was your 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 little theory here that they they slipped a couple the wrong bucket of balls in there, <laughs> but uh, all in all, I think it was just a great experience, and it was just the best possible uh, possible outcome for MLB, and they just did everything they could and let the kids play, and they uh, they went out. And they hit the ball into the cornfield, a whole bunch, and they made it a blast. Yeah, that's sweet and wholesome and all. But imagine if they held this game and not a <laughs> single ball got hit into the cornfield. You know how disappointing that would have been? The MLP was not going to take that chance. I'm sorry. Aaron Judge's first home run, if you go back and watch that, didn't get any part of the barrel of his bat. And I've seen Judge hit some pretty incredible home runs, some really long ones, some really far ones, and then some uh, sh- really short ones where it looks like any other hitter would have uh, been a routine fly up. Aaron Judge is so strong and so big and powerful that he's able to get the ball over the fence. But, I mean, the ball literally went off the top of his bat and had a launch angle of almost 170 degrees. Just, it, I mean, the thing just went straight up off his bat and still somehow left the stadium opposite field. As soon as I saw that, I was kind of uh, on the I was kind of on the fence at that point because I'm like that ball it does not go out in a typical MLB baseball game. And then several other guys just continued pinging balls out of that ballpark. Uh, normally, when you watch a game, you can see a fly ball off the bat and go, "Oh, that ball's a homer," or "Oh, that's a deep uh, fly to the fence. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't." But those every single ball that was hit in that stadium seemed to go a little bit farther than what you would think the average one was. So call me a conspiracy theorist and say what you want. I think the MLB just put a little insurance there to make sure there was plenty of action. I think your insurance, you know, I think what you're thinking is right. I don't think it was the baseball. If I'm going to remind you, I think the the left field and right field uh, fence, you know, it might have been a little, little pushed in. I mean, down the right field and left field line, it was only 335 feet. So that might explain why balls looked like they were carrying, even though they weren't really fully barreled up. Because it probably only took like a, an easy little 360-foot fly ball to just go deep into the cornfield and left field. So, I mean, that's probably what you're looking at. Uh, I, I think that more likely it was just a smaller ballpark than, you know, what they're used to playing into. But, I mean, again, they play at Yankee Stadium, so you see those all the time. <laughs> I think uh, it really is just the case that it was just a good game and, and, you know, the ball was flying that night and that's just how it was. Maybe that is – maybe you're right. Maybe it's just that's how the ball <laughs> flies in Iowa. Who knows? I think it was just a, a great game overall, and I, I'm not going to you know read too deep into it. I think it was just a fun product, and that's what you're looking for. Yeah, I'll take your word for it. I was just about to say the ballpark was definitely smaller than your average MLB park uh, all around the field to all parts, especially like center and left and right center in the gaps. So it was a little bit smaller. But 335 is pretty well distance out there for the corners, unless it wasn't actually 335, and that was just a random number they painted onto the fence, which is something MLB has also done in the past. But yeah, I'm used to watching these guys play in a 314 stadium down the right field line. So I've, I've seen some cheap home runs before, and some of those home runs were getting way out of there that just didn't look like they were going to make it. Then moving on here to our last storyline of the day, where we wrap up the show, 
and that is the use of foreign substances. When when the leak kind of announced that they were going to start policing it and start heavily doing it, nobody was really sure how exactly it would go. We've seen a lot of craziness. We've seen players take their belts off and throw it at the umpire for wanting to check them. I don't know why they're checking their inside of their belts either way. That seems like a very odd place to put something that you would want to uh, dig into between every I'm pitch. Just, players are creative, man. I don't have to tell you. Yeah, the players are creative. <laughs> but anyway, my point here that the story is Caleb Smith, a reliever for the Diamondbacks, was ejected the other day for using it. And he was only the second pitcher ejected uh, since the MLB implemented that uh, new rule or started enforcing the rule, whatever it is they exactly did. Uh, several months ago, I, I, you mean back at that time, if you would have asked me, oh, how many players do you think will get ejected uh, by mid to late August? I would have said 10 to 20. Yeah, I mean, I would have expected plenty of guys to still try to do it and get away with it, uh, but that hasn't really happened. And the interesting thing about it is not only is Caleb Smith heavily denying that he had any uh, um, relation with, foreign, with a foreign substance or some sort of uh, sticky tack in his glove or in his hat. But it was also the same umpiring crew that made the first ejected uh, ejection of the Mariners pitcher uh, several months ago. So, more conspiracy theories time? I mean, I think obviously the league will uh, investigate it. They'll see kind of how it goes. I think we're at a point, though, where this is, I think, clearly worked. Um, we see less and less uh, on the spin rates. I, I think there's less and less pitchers that are actually using sticky stuff. And it's gotten to the point where we don't necessarily even notice like anybody ending the umpire checks anymore. Uh, like you said, there's been some weird ones. There's been some funny reactions to them. Uh, and that, that's been kind of how it is. But I don't think there's too much to it. I think, well, again, we'll find out the answers if he was right or wrong, if he's just, you know, plausible deniability. But I, I mean, regardless of that, uh, I think the system's working and, and uh, we'll see what happens to Caleb Smith. Yeah, his glove was sent to the league office in New York for review, so we'll see exactly what happens with that. And yeah, I don't. I think it's been uh, implemented beautifully, or it's just worked very well. The players are cooperating. It hasn't been much of a storyline, and I think that's a very good thing for baseball because I don't think anybody wanted it to be a big storyline uh, going this far into the season. It really hasn't been. Everybody's talking about uh, the teams, the players, what's going on on the field, and not what's going on or potentially what's going on in the dugouts and on the side and all that and cheating. The last thing baseball needed was another big cheating scandal, especially in the playoffs. So they've kind of covered that up very well for now. And so, uh, yeah, credit to all those guys. And like we kind of mentioned earlier, Garrett Cole has settled back in and is pitching very well, as is a lot of other guys like Max Scherzer and um, Jacob deGrom was before he got injured. Some of the guys that were uh, maybe accused of using it. And then sim similarly, a John Means, who was also accused of using it, hasn't done very well. So maybe that kind of speaks something to him that he not going to say he was only good, but that he was very much benefited by it. Whereas a pitcher like Garrett Cole, who has a much longer track record, was able to adjust back to not using it. So all in all, yeah, I'm glad to see that that's no longer a big storyline. We'll continue to keep up with that with Caleb Smith. But I was kind of taken back a little bit when I saw he was the only second pitcher to be ejected from it because I would have assumed more people were because we even saw ejections for people who didn't have the uh, foreign substances, but they just didn't cooperate with the checks. I mean, yeah, again, I think at the beginning it was more so just like they implemented midseason. Pitchers weren't exactly a fan of the change. And uh, 
you know, messing up routines and all that. And like, remember we had the Tyler Glasnow thing where he basically blamed the MLB for his, uh, his elbow injury. But I mean, at this point, I think people are just used to it. They understand in between the innings, I got to show the umpire my glove, my hat. Sometimes I'll ask them to take the belt off. But uh, overall, I think it's just been, you know, smooth sailing. I think they kind of are cooperative now. And, and like I said, if anything happens, they'll be investigated. They'll make sure they got it right. If not, I mean, that's just how it is. And I'm sure there's still players out there that are probably trying to use stuff. Maybe they haven't been caught. Maybe the system isn't perfect. But I think they've done a pretty good job, and and you know all signs so all signs show that this has been working. And that's going to do it to us today. This has been a bit of a longer episode. We're closing on the hour and fifteen minute mark. We had a lot to cover in baseball uh, since we did miss a few weeks. Once again, we apologize for that. But now we'll be back on a consistent schedule, bringing you both MLB content throughout uh, the rest of the regular season and the playoffs, and then soon starting up with the NBA content again. Uh, look forward for that. Uh, of course, follow us on our social medias at uh, the OTW uh, on Twitter, and then at Off the Waivers on uh, TikTok. Uh, Catch us there. Let us know what you think about our show. Give us any questions, comments, concerns, anything you might have. Until then, Eric, do you have anything else to leave them on? No, I don't. I'm just glad that we're back. You know, we took a long break, a little bit of a vacation there. It was kind of some, you know, the dog days of August. We were getting ready to get back and moving back into school as well as just, you know, taking that little break that I think we need to get refreshed. But it's good to be back, and you know the content's going to be flowing from now on. Yep, enjoy the last uh, few weeks we have of the warm weather in the summer season before we move into fall here. With that, peace out, everyone.